0: Join the guild and secure your ticket to Scott's sale at the best possible price by visiting MaxLawEvents.com.
1: I think written content is absolutely critical. And I'll also say that I think for most attorneys, that's probably the easiest way to create content. You guys have been writing your entire career ever since college, briefs and those kinds of things. You're all good writers. You just need a little bit of direction as to what to write and how to write it. But you can write.
2: Run your law firm the right way. The right way. This is the Maximum Liar, Podcast. Maximum Liar Podcast. Your hosts, Jim Hacking and Tyson Mutrix. Let's partner up and maximize your firm. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. I'm Jim Hacking. And I'm Tyson Mutrix. What's up, Jimmy? Oh, Tyson, it's been a long time since we talked. We recorded an episode this morning, so this is two in one day, but we're really excited to have Mike Alton on the show today. I met Mike out at Social Media World San Diego, or Social Media Day San Diego, Tyler Anderson's thing that Mitch Jackson was kind enough to invite me to. And it was so funny because I came all the way there from St. Louis, and, and Mike at the time was living in... St. Charles or O'Fallon, and and we met out there, so that was sort of funny. But um, (laughs) since that time, I've been following him on social, and he's got a lot of cool things to talk about today. So, Mike, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it was funny not to just meet you, but to sit next to you, (laughs) you know, and enjoy their little crab boil on the banks of the beach uh, at the Bahia Resort, and say, oh, yeah, I'm from Missouri, too.
3: Jim, I still think that you need to have on your website, like where in the world is Jim hacking? Because like you're always bouncing around from either conference or different places, uh, different courts around the country. So that'd be great. So Mike, I guess talk a little bit about what you do and and how you got into it.
1: Yeah. So I do a lot (laughs) and it's kind of frightening to some people. So I'll try not to overwhelm because of of how much content I create and that sort of thing. But I have a full-time job with Agorapulse. I'm their brand evangelist. That's what I do day in and day out. I work with influencers and marketers in our space. But I also have a variety of side projects. I've got the Social Media Hat, which is a blog that I have had since 2011. And I recently spun off all of the content from that site that was about blogging to a new site called Blogging Brutes. So that just started a few months ago. And then I also had the 360 Marketing Squad where Jim is at where me and Stephanie Liu and Jen Herman and Mana Robinson are doing Facebook Lives on a monthly basis in terms of training and offering all kinds of insight and input into our members' marketing needs, goals, and questions.
2: Mike, tell us about Agorapulse. I didn't know about it until I met you out there in San Diego, and I know it's a sort of an aggregator for different social media channels, but I know it does a lot more than that. How did you get involved in them, and, and what does it do?
1: Yeah, it's a uh, social media marketing tool, right? So it's like a Hootsuite or a Sprout Social. It's designed to be a dashboard that helps you publish and schedule content, monitor that content, monitor the comments and messages you might get on multiple social channels, and, of course, create some reports. And interestingly, I got started using Pulse which I want to say three and a half years ago, almost four years ago, because I met the CEO, Emrick, at Social Media Marketing World also in San Diego and up until that point i have been using Hootsuite. I literally wrote the book on Hootsuite but at that point in my career I was becoming disinterested in Hootsuite for a variety of reasons and it was very great timing for Emmerich to sit down and, and meet me and show me the tool and from that point on I was using Agorapulse every day. I became an affiliate, I became an ambassador, wrote about Agorapulse and then they hired me last year almost 11 months ago to fill this role of being in charge of relationships.
3: So, Mike, what are some ways that lawyers, if they wanted to start using Agorapulse, could start using it in in their practices?
1: Well, the cool thing about a tool like Agorapulse, and this is really frankly true for every social media management tool, it's designed to help professionals like lawyers who social media is not their main gig. Right, as an attorney, you've got other things that you need to do. We were talking about depositions, right, before we went into the recording. My dad's an attorney, so I know everything that you guys are doing on a high-level basis, right? You're meeting with clients, you're, you're attending hearings, you're meeting with other lawyers, you're doing those kinds of things, you're trying to grow your practice. Meanwhile, there's this thing called social media that you know you're supposed to be doing, but you don't have a lot of time. So that's where the tool comes in. You can automate certain processes, you can keep yourself from having to go to three or maybe four different platforms to schedule content or see what's going on. You've got one place on your desktop or one app on your phone to bring up to share an interesting article or to monitor some comments and answer some questions, which is really the most important thing that any lawyer could do online. And it's, it's a bit counterintuitive from what traditional attorneys have done over the years, and this is where our mutual friend Miss Jackson comes into play so strongly. Lawyers historically have not wanted to give away a lot of information. They have not wanted to educate their audience because they feel like that's too valuable of information to just give away. The reality is, the more educated I am as a consumer, as a potential customer, the more likely I am to know, like, and trust you, and I wanna work with you. Because the other reality is, there's only so much that I can do as an individual. If I need legal help, I really need legal help, right? And I'm not going to be able to rely on myself as, no matter how educated I might become.
2: Given the fact that your dad was a lawyer, how do you get people started? Like if you were to talk to your dad, if he if were practicing now and he was our age, what advice would you have for him? Because, you know, lawyers love to say how busy they are, how heavy they are, you know, how much money they're making, how busy they are on cases. What advice would you give to people that want to sort of dip their toe in it?
1: Well, what I usually suggest is that they find an easy way to get started, and for most, that means curating content. So the articles that you're reading, the news bits that you're finding, that you think are relevant and interesting to your potential audience, which is the people who might hire you, those are an easy thing to share to social media and an easy way to use a tool, so for instance, you, Jim, you might go into Feedly every morning and spend just five minutes scanning the headlines of the news sources that you've identified in advance. So Feedly is an app, right, where you can, you can bring in those RSS feeds. And you might see some stories that are relevant to your audience, because you're doing immigration, right? There's no shortage of information and news uh, these days that are interesting to people who would be looking for help from someone like you. So there's all kinds of stories you could be looking for and sharing out to social media. But here's the thing if you're going to spend just five or 10 minutes each morning doing that, and let's say you find five articles today, which is not outside of the realm of possibility, about immigration that would be interesting to your immigrant or immigrant concerned customers, you can't tweet them out all at once. That's overwhelming to your audience. In fact, if you share a bunch of content like that to, say, a Facebook page, which every practicing attorney should have a Facebook page, if you share all five of those posts at once, you're actually hurting yourself. Facebook is not going to show all that content to your audience. It's basically to treating it like spam. So you need to space that out. You could do that yourself if you want to. You can set a reminder to yourself to sit back down in two hours and then four hours and then six hours later and you know, slowly dole out that content or you can use a tool. Now, if all we're talking about is scheduling content, I'll be totally transparent, you don't need a tool like Agorapulse, it's overkill. You can use a free tool like Buffer and have a Twitter account and a Facebook page, maybe even an Instagram, and push out content like that. Where you need that stronger tool is when you're getting a lot of engagement on that content and you wanna pay attention to what people are saying and respond to them as close to real time as you can manage with your other things that you have going on and then you wanna start to run reports as to how things are going. So if you are just starting with social media, I'm not telling you to go get a pulse. It's gonna be too overwhelming. Use the platforms natively and as you begin to find things that you can share on a more regular basis, kind of graduate to a less expensive or a free tool like Buffer's free plan or Hootsuite's free plan, something like that, where you've only got a couple of profiles to worry about down the road, then you might need a tool like Agorapulse when you're actually starting to see some success, and that's when that tool can help you.
3: So, Mike, how often, I mean, I know there's, there's probably some people watching this and listening to this thinking, like, well, how, how freaking often do I need to be checking my social media and responding? So what would your response be to that question? Well,
1: My favorite response is it depends (laughs) because it depends on how much engagement you're receiving back, right? If I post a news story this morning and I begin to get a lot of comments and interaction with that news story, that's different from someone who's just starting, they haven't developed an audience, and they share a news story this morning, maybe even the same story, and they get zero comments and engagement. Obviously, that person doesn't have to keep checking that every 10 minutes because there's nothing going on. So, to me, a good rule of thumb is to try to avoid going more than four hours before you respond to a comment. So as you're just starting, you know, you can check it once a day because you're, you're just building an audience. You're not going to have that much engagement. But as you grow an audience, as you become more familiar, as you're engaging with other people and they're starting to follow you, and now you're having conversations back and forth on those social posts, that's when you're going to want to check it a little more often, probably at least twice a day. could be in the morning. It could be late at night. And for most of the time, that's going to be fine. You know, nobody's going to be leaving you a comment on your Facebook page from jail not going to happen, right? They're going to call you if they actually need your professional advice and and services. So the conversations that are happening on Facebook and Twitter, they're just conversations, and they can wait for a few hours.
2: Mike, I thought that the point that Tyson was going to make or the question he was going to ask is how often is too much posting? How often, like, can you be too annoying by posting too much if you're Let's say you're promoting something if you're tweeting all the time and 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 is there a good mix to put in things that's not you know sort of that jab 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 right hook theory
1: yeah, the answer to all of the above is yes, you can post too often, you can be annoying and there there is a right mix now, what that looks like depends on what social network we're talking about. Twitter moves a lot faster, so your audience by its very nature is going to be a lot more forgiving. I tweet anywhere from every 30 minutes to an hour and a half. So I'm tweeting all day long, I've got tools that are helping me, a lot of it's native and organic, but I tweet a lot. The average attorney doesn't have to tweet that often. The average attorney could tweet once a day or a few times a day, and that would be perfectly fine. And if you were to get to a point where you've been creating content, and maybe we'll talk about that later, what kind of content to create, but if you've got content that you've been creating, you want to reshare that over and over again, you might Get to the point where you're tweeting many, many times a day. I've got hundreds of evergreen articles in my archive. That's a big reason why I tweet so often. I can tweet 20 times a day and not repeat myself for a month. So the people that follow me today, this is all fresh to them. They've never read any of my content before. Maybe they read one piece, and then they started to follow me. But that's Twitter. Now, Facebook's a totally different animal because Facebook has an algorithm in play that's taking a look at what you're sharing, they're taking a look at who you're sharing it to, and they're taking a look at how those people respond and react to what you're sharing. And those three things dictate what happens to your next share. So you can share way too often on Facebook. For most small businesses, once or twice a day is plenty. Three to four times is starting to get potentially too much. And if you're sharing more than five times a day, I would question it. That's not to say that you can't, and there are certainly organizations out there that have the audience, and they have the content, and they have the engagement to warrant that. But again, for the people that we're talking to, once or twice a day is probably more than enough. And what you wanna do, you mentioned the Jab, Jab, Right Hook, which is the Gary Vaynerchuk thing, and I love it. The one thing I don't like about that imagery is that because it's boxing, it's like I'm trying to hit you and attack you, and that's actually not what we're doing, of course. But the idea is that with the jab-jab, it's one kind of an approach, one kind of content, and the right hook is something different. And the right hook would be the salesy type of thing. The jabs would be the helpful, entertaining, educational content. So one way to approach it is I tell clients, try sharing a video first thing in the morning. I don't mean a link to YouTube, I mean an actual natively uploaded video or a live video like what we're doing today. A link to YouTube is a link to Facebook's competitor and they don't like that so much. So you start with a video first thing in the morning. Or an image, a motivational graphic, a quote graphic, a meme, something again that's educational perhaps. Again in our industry or your, your industry I should say, you know, you could grow to some of those news sources and you could pull out a quote or a statistic. You know, I'm sure, Jim, every day there are new statistics coming out about immigration behavior that you could just throw it into a graphic in Canva and share that to Facebook. That's going to get a lot of interest and engagement from your audience. Now, notice the two things I said was video and image. I didn't say text, and I didn't say a link because Facebook doesn't like that because your audience doesn't like that. So if you post just plain text, it's probably not going to perform very well. And if you post a link to outside content, it's definitely not going to perform very well. I recommend, for most people, never doing that. Now, I say that (laughs) with the understanding that I actually do it all the time, but I'm different. So for you guys, don't share what we call a link post, right, where you've put the link into Facebook and you allow Facebook to create that auto-generated preview where it pulls an image out of the article and it pulls the title and the description and all that kind of stuff. Don't do that. That's not to say that you can't share links to other content, but you wanna share an image and put the link in the caption. Facebook, don't listen Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook's not yet smart enough to realize that you're sharing a link outwards, and it will treat that like an image post. And so it'll get the same reach and potentially the same engagement as just an image. So we start by sharing a video or an image. That's our first share. If we're doing two shares a day, the second share might be a link to our own content or a call to action to call us if they need help in one area or another, something like that. So you start with a post that's helpful and engaging, and then you follow it with either another post that's helpful and engaging or that right hook, that salesy, or at least that business-building piece of content.
3: My mind is sort of blown about the link. I mean, I, I see people doing links all the time. I, I'm actually shocked by that, so so no links. Are there any topics that we should avoid when it comes to posting things? Anything, any specific, like for example, should we avoid politics like Jim likes to get into or anything else? I mean, and it seems to work well for Jim because his is a political, I mean, his practice area is all political right now. But for other industries, should they avoid that? Or are there other types of topics that we should avoid?
1: Well, I would say right off the bat, you absolutely have to avoid Posting about anything that is in and of itself illegal, because not only will your audience not care for it, probably Facebook definitely won't care for it, and will probably shut down your page. Like you can't, you can't post about drug use, and you know unless it's like facts, right? But you can't like advertise, you know, that you're selling drugs or anything else along those lines. So obviously, maybe not obvious, you can't do that, but. I love that you brought up politics, because politics falls into this area of what I call controversial topics, and it's not that you can't talk about those things, you simply have to be aware as a business owner that they are in fact controversial, and you may, you will turn off a portion of your audience, but at the same time, you're going to activate a different portion of your audience. And you have to be okay with that. You have to be okay with that tension. You have to be okay with the negativity that will probably come back at you on some of those posts. But recognize that it's potentially a good risk to take. Jim is a great example. Guy Kawasaki is another great example. Guy's got millions of followers. He used to work for Apple. He was the chief evangelist for Apple. And now he goes on to LinkedIn, and he'll share... Left leaning content and or anti-right content. And the his this was an experiment on his part. He wanted to see what would happen. And he lost followers. Absolutely. There were you know right leaning followers of his that just you know blew up in their brains and said, Ah, I can't believe you're doing this. I I don't want to see this stuff, which is fine. But he gained more than he lost by a factor of ten. I mean, it wasn't just, like, a little bit more. I mean, it was, like, exponentially more followers. And I think it's because he took a stand. He made his position known, and he wasn't afraid to talk about it, and he wasn't afraid to share information about it in a, you know, not belligerent or or confrontational way, but, you know, here's – some more content. Here's an article on this particular topic. Yes, I believe this. And and yes, I'm leaning this way. And that's the stand that he took. And that attracted more people than it repelled.
2: I decided, Michael, you're right, that I had to take a stand and that I had to be totally ready to let the people who didn't agree with my worldview, that they were never going to hire me anyway. They're not going to be bringing in immigrants anyway. And it's really funny because my best performing YouTube video was one that I took on Trump directly and it got into the right wing social sphere. So I got a lot of hate comments, but it also had more comments, more shares, and more views than any one of my other videos. So and then I actually had a chance to dialogue with some people so it, it really it really worked.
1: Can I can I share a little hack with you guys? Pretty much every social network works the same way. When one of us posts something to a social network, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, doesn't matter. You create a piece of content, you create a post on that network. The network watches that post, and they watch how your followers and their followers respond. They're not paying attention to actually what is said. Right. They're simply looking at the reactions, comments, and the shares. In other words, they're looking at the engagement, which means the more engagement you get on a post, the more visibility it's going to get, and it doesn't matter if it's positive or negative engagement. So one of the things the guy talks about is, and this is particularly true on Facebook, when you've got somebody who's posting on a Facebook post of yours, and they're saying something that's what we call trollish in behavior. They're not just disagreeing; they're being malicious in how they're disagreeing. You know, they might even be, you know, profane in what they're saying. You know, that kind of thing. He doesn't delete it. He doesn't block them. He hides it. Because on Facebook, you can hide a comment so that everybody else who comes to the post won't see it except for the person who made it and their friends. So he lets them come in. He encourages the discourse. He encourages the trolls because that helps him. That helps his posts get more visibility.
3: That's a pretty good hack. I, I see Jimmy using that in about uh, 40 minutes or so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, Mike, I've got a question from Don McClure. It's a good one, and I'm going to have a – basically, there's going to be a two-part question because David Terry has one I think that you could address as well. So Don McClure says, even if you are using something like Agora polls, how should we be tailoring our posts to the platform being used? Are we simply sending out the same thing we use on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, et cetera? How do we repurpose according to the platform and still have automation? So that's, that's the first part of it. The second part of it is David that's Terry. the first part?
1: That's like three questions. I know,
3: I know, I know. <laughs> uh, and if you okay. need me to repeat it, I will in a second. Nope, David Terry, <laughs> and he also said, um, can you dig a little bit deeper about putting the links within the images? He wants you to address that. So.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Don, to answer your question, You definitely should pay attention to the best practices for each social network, and these change. So the number one best advice I can give everybody listening is to subscribe to the Agorapal Social Media Lab. It's actually a separate blog and a separate podcast. It's not promoting the tool or the platform at all. They're out there running experiments every single day, and they're testing things like, What's the optimal character count for a tweet? How how big should my images be? You know, how many hashtags should I use on Instagram? They're testing those things because the platforms aren't gonna tell you and those things change over time because the algorithms change, usage change, cultures change, those kinds of things. These platforms are very fluid when it comes to what works best. But I can tell you, generally speaking, for tweets, you're probably gonna wanna include two to three hashtags. For Facebook, you probably shouldn't include any hashtags at all. Twitter, you can test using a couple of hashtags. Instagram, you can test using anywhere from 8 to 30 hashtags. So be thinking about those kinds of things when you're creating content for those different posts. Be also thinking about your audience on those different networks. Twitter users are very used to tapping links and opening up content. Twitter has a built-in browser, so they really never leave the platform technically. And they're totally happy to read your article right there. Facebook, kind of maybe sometimes they're okay leaving the platform. Instagram, it's going to be very rare. First of all, you can't have a link inside of an Instagram caption. You have to tell them to click on a link in your bio. And frankly, they're just not there to get news. They're not there to go to external sites. They're on Instagram to consume imagery content. So your Instagram caption, the text that goes with your Instagram image, it's probably going to, to be longer. It's probably going to, to be more informative. You're probably going to have to basically say everything that you might have said in an article that you were sharing in that caption, just in a more compressed, aggregated form. So, look for those kinds of differences. Now, one of the cool things with with dashboards like Agorapulse is that if I want to share an article, I'll bring the link into Agorapulse and I'll have the compose window. But off to my right, I will see. Any of the social network platforms that I've chosen to share to, like so let's say I want to share something to LinkedIn, to Twitter, and to Facebook, there'll be a little tab, and I can see how each one of those shares looks, and I can edit them. So I could change the text for Facebook, I could change the text for Twitter, I can make sure I'm mentioning people on Twitter, I can change the text for LinkedIn, I could do whatever I want for those platforms. I used to talk about a Google Plus at this point, because a Google Plus you could use formatting, but... Obviously, that's going away, so we're not going to talk about Google+, and I'll just cry about it a little bit. So you can do that, and you should do that. You can share content at the same time across all your networks. Don't worry about that. There's this perception, this fallacy that you should never share the same thing across social networks. It's just not true. It's not. Your audience is not using four platforms at the same time. But they're not even going to see that you share the same thing across multiple platforms at the same time in all probability. And the reality is you have different people following you on those different platforms. You don't have the same 100 followers across every platform. So don't worry about sharing the same thing across those platforms. So hopefully, Don, that helps you a little bit. I know that's not an exact answer because there's no such thing. What you're sharing will really drive uh, how you're going to share it. But David's question, when you're crafting a post on Facebook, or Twitter, or LinkedIn, you can start writing some text, you can start by putting in a link, or you can start by uploading an image, and this is what I was talking about before. You want to start with the image because then that tells that platform this is an image post, and specifically on Facebook, that's where that's going to benefit you. You upload the image first, but before you hit publish, you can still write whatever you wanna write. So you can describe what it is that you're talking about, what it is that you're linking to, and then you can copy and paste the link in that text field.
2: That's awesome, Mike. I think that's something that 99% of the people using Facebook had no idea about. Now, one of the great things about having experts on our show is that we get to be a little selfish and ask questions that directly benefit us. So I'm gonna, before we switch to blogging, because I know that's a passion of yours, and I know that's sort of your latest endeavor is Sort of refocusing on blogging. YouTube. So I'm coming up on about 400 YouTube videos. They're, immigra- they're all immigration-based, and they're all basically me answering a question. So someone comes in and asks me a question. If I know the answer, I tell them, and then when they leave, I come shoot a video because I figure other people have that question. Or if I don't know the answer, I look it up, I let them know what the answer is, and then I go shoot a video about that. I'm wondering, where do you see YouTube headed? What kind of things should I be thinking about when it comes to YouTube? I'm thinking about starting to run YouTube ads, so anything, any guidance you'd have, I'd greatly appreciate.
1: YouTube is a, well, this is a great question because YouTube's different. YouTube is not Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and it's not just the name, it's not just the format. How people use that platform is totally different. People go to YouTube, generally speaking, to find out something. They go to YouTube to learn about something. Or even more importantly, they're starting on Google as a search engine, and they end up on YouTube, right, because of the listing and the ranking. So the mindset from a YouTuber, from a small business owner, from an attorney who's utilizing YouTube is how do I make my videos come up in search? That's different from how I post to Twitter and how I post to Facebook. Nobody's searching for anything that I'm talking about on Facebook or Twitter, I guarantee it. But when I share content to YouTube, just like my blog, it's helpful, it's informational, it's educational, just like your videos. And so there's the potential for people to find them. So the one big tip that I'd have for you right now is to go use TubeBuddy. You ever use TubeBuddy? I love TubeBuddy and I just started using it recently. TubeBuddy is, there's a free service and then there's professional plans. And it's a little extension that you can install in Chrome. And when you're editing, your YouTube video, right? So you're in the back end of YouTube now and you're like putting in the title and the description and you're uploading the thumbnail, those kinds of technical details of uploading a video to YouTube. There's also a tags field. And this is where, you, where TubeBuddy really shines because TubeBuddy will actually suggest to you tags to use based on some of what you've already put in. So absolutely, you want to put in a good description and and talk about what you're saying in the video, but those tags are what's going to make your video come up in search, both within YouTube and on Google, the external search engine.
2: Tyson, before you hop on, we started using TubeBuddy about six months ago, and our subscriber list has quadrupled, our views have quadrupled. I mean, we, we haven't used the paid feature yet, but I think we're going to subscribe to it because what we want to do is download all the data about it, are there any other benefits to subscribing to the professional version of TubeBuddy?
1: Well, I think it makes the tag selection a lot more robust. Um,
2: okay.
1: I haven't used the professional version either. I've only been using the free version for the 360 marketing live shows, and, and already it's, I've seen the results of that. That's so tremendous! Yeah, yeah,
3: for sure. Thanks. I've got an interesting question. I'm not sure you have an answer to it. We'll see. So we talked to Nancy Merlin earlier, and we were talking about voice search and things like that. Where is it, or is it going to intersect, the worlds of social and and voice search, are those going to intersect, and where are they going to intersect, and how can we get ready for that? That is a really interesting question,
1: and I certainly can't claim to be giving you the answer, or even the right answer. Obviously, that's going to be very opinionated. Voice search – is definitely coming a long way. There were initial obstacles from a voice recognition technology perspective, right? They've got to understand what it is I'm looking for. But then once that's been kind of cracked for for most everybody, you know, except those with the deepest accents, now the issue is how do we connect that voice recognition to more and more robust search results and search engines? Uh, So that's what we're seeing now. Think back to when Siri first came out right, and now I'm activating everybody's phones, but when you got that first version of iOS, and I don't remember what version it was, it was a few years ago, there was a very limited number of things that you could really ask Siri. You couldn't even ask her to play music, but you could ask her, you know, like, basic factual information, and and in fact, I recall Apple talking about, you know, Tim was on stage talking about how it was uh, Wolfram Alpha, Alpha, I think I'm, I'm saying that right, it was basically one... Companies data and it was kind of like an encyclopedia, but not really where there was factual information and that was it Now obviously over the years, it's gotten more and more robust There's more things that we can ask Siri more things we can ask Siri to do so part of it is the technology evolving and connecting to more and more search and also it's the app developers finally getting licensed to connect to Siri and now Siri can play my music on Spotify and, and do those kinds of things beyond just calling my wife or telling me how tall Tom Cruise is. Just one of those is not very useful. So that's where we're at. Now, where we're going in terms of the intersection of social and voice search, I'm not sure because the social networks themselves, they've tried making their content available on an aggregate to search, and it's just not used. People don't really search tweets outside of Twitter. People aren't looking for Facebook posts through search engines. So the overhead in terms of what it takes to make that data available to like a search engine like Google has in the past proven to be too expensive and not worthwhile. So I don't think we're going to see a lot of search capability coming on the voice side. I just don't see myself or other consumers Asking Alexa or asking Siri to find a tweet or to find something on on Facebook, what I do see is a little more functionality in terms of the creating of the content. right? I might want to say, Alexa, tweet something and use my voice to just create that content without having to type it in, without even having to have a mobile device in my hand.
3: So I want to jump in real quick, Jim, before you ask your question. I went ahead and asked Siri how tall Tom Cruise is, and he is five feet seven inches. So uh, just just Fun want to make you. sure everyone knows. So they don't. Hopefully they didn't turn this off and, and then take a search and then come back. So I just wanted to make sure you knew that, Jim. Is that taller than you or shorter than you? Just just a smidge taller than me, just barely. Oh my gosh! I think you could take him. Maybe. <laughs> All right, you can my... run faster than you.
2: I know blogging is your passion and you've been blogging for a very long time. Is blogging important now for lawyers in 2019?
1: Yes, absolutely, because Google is still the number one search engine and Google is mostly surfacing text results. You could create content 100% in video, but the reality is not all of your audience is going to want to watch a video. I hate to watch a video. I really do. I, I don't like consuming educational news content via video. I want to be able to open an article or open a web page or open a blog post and skim it for the information I'm looking for and then get on with my life. I don't want to watch your 30-minute video only to get the information I need 20 minutes in. That's, that's not what I'm looking for. So I think written content is absolutely critical. And I'll also say that I think I think for most attorneys, that's probably the easiest way to create content. You guys have been writing your entire career ever since college, briefs and those kinds of things. You're all good writers. You just need a little bit of direction as to what to write and how to write it. But you can write, and you write probably so much that you don't even really think about it. Whereas other people in other industries, I can't say the same thing. Other people in other industries, they're going to struggle with the writing. And it's not part of their day-to-day job, and so it's not going to be as easy for them. So video might actually be easier for other people. That's not to say that, yeah, obviously, you, know, you can use video if you want to, but I think blogging absolutely has a place.
3: So I guess I asked this question earlier, Jimmy, and I'm not sure what, uh, what you thought about it, but let's say that you are a 55-year-old lawyer and you've never used social and you and your partner split up or you're fired from a big firm because this happens all the freaking time. How would you suggest? Like, where's the Where's the first platform you would tell people to get that person to go to to get started with social? And what should they start doing?
1: Facebook is always the default place to go as your first platform. It's the biggest platform. It's the most robust platform. And by biggest, I mean everybody that you could potentially want to talk to is on Facebook. That's the reality of the day. Over two billion people using Facebook every single month. Every other platform has plenty of people so there's no wrong answer here but generally speaking Facebook's probably the best forget about your privacy concerns forget about any personal mores you may have against Facebook that's not the point this is your business and you want to do what's best for your business which is getting in front of your target audience and for most attorneys we're talking about a very specific geographic audience right Again, you know, to use my dad as an example, you know, he was an attorney in a small town in northern Ohio. And while he might get calls from people outside of that town because they were, you know, dealing with something, an issue or whatever in that area, 99% of his target audience lived in Huron County, Ohio. So that's who we wanted to talk to. And this is where Facebook becomes so powerful because you can do really, really super targeted and affordable ads, Right? Forget about yellow pages. Forget about billboards. Forget about 30 second radio donuts on, on the drive into to work. Use Facebook ads because you can target exactly who you want to talk to, both from a geographic perspective and an interest perspective. And you can reach them in ways that you can't reach them in any other way for far less money. I mean, you can spend a dollar a day or five bucks a day on Facebook ads and keep that phone ringing every single day if that's what you want.
2: All right. Well, that's sort of scary, and I don't think there's many lawyers at all doing Facebook ads. I think that most lawyers are a little bit timid, and they're thinking about it. They've dabbled in it. I think some have been burned by Facebook experts, and I was listening to a podcast the other day. They said that if you aren't spending like $5,000, I think it was a month, that you should definitely do your Facebook ads yourself and with the, with the limits on it. If you spend some time educating yourself, just spend the money that you would spend on an expert. Just spend that on the ads, and even if you make mistakes, you're still going to be saving money. Absolutely,
1: and that's an interesting number because depending on the size of the firm and the kinds of cases that you're going after, five thousand dollars might sound like a lot of money, and it would be, and for many firms, that's probably more than you would need to spend. I certainly don't spend that much on on Facebook advertising personally. I might spend a hundred or two hundred bucks a month personally for my side projects. Now, you know, Agorapal spends quite a bit more, and we're heavily invested in, in Facebook ads because that's where our audience is and we're able to target them quite efficiently. So what I would recommend for most attorneys is to begin the process of creating helpful educational content, exactly as you've been doing, Jim, by creating those videos on YouTube. So you might take your top 10 YouTube videos that are really, really helpful, you think, to your target audience, and make sure that they exist as blog posts on your site. Even if the blog post is just the embedded YouTube video and a summary of what's in the video, that's fine. It doesn't have to be you, know, you taking the time to totally create a transcript. It doesn't have to be that much text. If that helps. Go to Rev.com and get that transcript for a dollar a minute if you for have sure. the time and the resources, but you don't have to. And then create a Facebook ad targeting your target audience and send them to that blog post. You're not nice. selling them. You're educating them. You're becoming the guy that they're going to turn to when they have questions. You're going to put yourself in their mind before they even know that they need you.
3: Great. So Mitch Jackson has a question, and he wants to know your thoughts on short-form content.
1: Well, I've never heard of it because I don't create it. <laughs>
3: I, I'm i known for writing
1: Really, really long-form content. The article that I published today, I think, was like 4,500 words. That's how I teach, that's how I create, because I enjoy it personally. So, to Mitch's point, obviously there is short-form content, which is usually 250 words or less. And as a blog post, that's not very worthwhile. As a tweet, that could be great. As a Facebook post or a LinkedIn post, that's okay, too. Now, I'll tell you, In 250 words, as a small business owner, you're not communicating anything, really. That's very little information. You're not going to be able to teach me about a topic in 250 words. You can state an opinion. You can share a statistic or something else fairly brief in that amount of of space, but not much else, which means you're not likely to have a lot of impact. And that's not the kind of content that's going to perform well Long term, which is why I say as a blog post, it's almost not worth the effort to publish something that's 250 words or less. For a blog post, your average blog post should be 750 to 1,250 words. You can go 500 words or less once in a while, but unless you're Seth Godin, you're not going to get any traffic to a blog post that's short. And at least once a quarter, you should be trying to publish blog content that's 2,000 words or more. I know for most of you that sounds like a lot of work. For most of you, you've probably never published anything that long, but the reality is, content that that is that long, by its very nature, you will have gone into depth about a particular topic, you will have shared a lot of information out of your own mind about a subject of interest to me or your potential audience. And so the people that come to that piece of content, they're going to appreciate it. They're going to stay there longer. They're going to read the whole thing. They're going to want to share it. And Google's going to be watching every single person that comes to your site and watching how much time they spend and where else they go after they've read that particular piece of content and they're going to see all these positive signals and they're going to rank that piece of content higher and higher and higher and get you more and more
2: traffic. All right. So I want to respect your time and you've been very generous with your time. I really appreciate it. I want to do a couple of things. One is I want to tell everyone Michael referenced his long blog post from today and I'm about halfway through it. It's terrific. And it's one live video creating 26 pieces of content. And it's tremendous. And can you summarize it real quick? I'll put a link in the notes below and in the show notes for the show to the piece. But can you tell our audience sort of what your mindset is on that?
1: absolutely and it's so appropriate because we're doing a facebook live right now so this is us creating that initial piece of content we've been on air for you know a little under 50 minutes right and we might go a few more minutes so let's just round it up and say we've done it we've we've created a one hour video and you know jim and tyler you're doing a great job but but you brought me on to bring the expertise right so Anybody can do that. Anybody can bring on other guests and let the guests share what they know and create a 30 to 60 minute video. And so what I've done in this article is helped you understand what you can do with that video after you're done broadcasting because there are so many things. You can upload it to YouTube. You can turn it into a blog post. You can slice it up and create little, smaller, one to two minute to three minute bites that you can upload to instagram and facebook and twitter and other ways you can create audiograms you can create quote graphics you can do all these things and take that one hour video and generate months of content and it's a fantastic way particularly for people who don't like to write to create long form content because i've been speaking for almost an hour now I've almost said 10,000 words. If you were to publish this to your site, now you've got a long form blog post that's practically epic in nature. That's gold. That's what you all should be doing. Now, one of the cool things about that particular post, because I linked to my friend Stephanie Liu, who's got a mastermind right now that'll help people create live video. So if that's your stumbling block, follow the links to Stephanie's mastermind. But if you're comfortable with live video and you can start there, that article will walk you through the rest of the way.
3: That's awesome stuff. So, we are going to wrap up. Uh, before I do, I want to remind everyone that's not watching in the Facebook group right now to go to the Facebook group, join there. There's a lot of great activity, a lot of great information. People like Mike Altner are in there. I'm not sure if you are in there yet, Mike, but we'll have to get you an invite to, to come to the group yeah, if you'd sure. like to and, and share what great information you have. And then also go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And if you don't mind, give us a five star review. Jimmy, what's your hack of the week?
2: All right, so lots of things before I even get to my hack. Number one is I'm glad the episode's ending because I want to listen to it all. There's so much actionable stuff in here. I'm really excited about that. Number two, here in St. Louis where we live, it's going to be about minus 20 or minus 5, 10 degrees tonight. And Mike is a huge Star Wars fan. So just so you know, every year, once a year at our house, we freeze Han Solo. We, We get a cup of water. We put them in the water, and we leave it out overnight. So I've been waiting. It hasn't been cold enough. So tonight's the night. We're very excited about that. Number three is, with your permission, I told Tyson today that we're launching now a YouTube channel for Maximum Lawyer. We both have them for ourselves. I think this would be an awesome signature YouTube video for us to, to launch the, the channel with, given all the great things that you've said today.
1: I love the idea about Han Solo. I'm going to do that with my girls as soon as we get off the call.
2: Yeah, because then you get to defrost them, right? That's yeah. the fun part. He defrosting him. Yeah, yeah. And so my hack of the week is to definitely, we didn't talk nearly enough about blogging that I wanted to for Mike. I think all of our audience is going to understand that you really know your stuff. I mean, just the little hacks and tips that you threw out during the course of the hour are great. So I would encourage everyone to get on Mike's email list because his blog, his blog posts are tremendous. And a great way to just stay up to date on things. I mean, this, you know, you often hear sometimes that people are giving away content for free that other people are charging so much money for. That's totally true with Mike, and we're really grateful for you to come on the show. So everybody, my hack of the week is to get on Mike's email list. Thank you.
1: Yeah, just to be clear, I've got the socialmediahead.com and bloggingbrood.com. It's all the same email list, so if if you're on one, you're great. Uh, There's not two lists or anything like that. It's not hard. You can go to either site, Sign up for whatever you
3: want. Jim is a kiss-ass, but that is a good tip, so I'll, I'll, I'll let it pass. <laughs> um, so, so, Mike, we always ask our guests to give a, a tip or a hack of the week. I know you've given us a, a ton of information. Do you do you mind give us, giving us another hack or a tip?
1: Okay, another hack or tip. Okay. Yeah, well, one cool thing that you guys should do, another tool that you could use is BuzzSumo. I don't know if you guys have used BuzzSumo before, but with BuzzSumo, you can research the questions that your target audience is asking and write about that. And I say that because as a, as a blogger for years, I would historically create content that I thought would be really good. You know, I thought that people would want to know about this. And I can't tell you how many times I have been wrong and I have spent the time to create a piece of content and publish it and promote it and nobody cares. Don't do that yourselves. Take the time to use a tool like BuzzSumo where you can put in some comments and some text and some questions in the content analyzer. You can look to see what your competitors are publishing about and how that's performing, and you can get some ideas for what's actually going to resonate with your audience before you take the time to create that content.
3: Excellent stuff. I've never used BuzzSumo. I've seen it around. I guess it's something I should should look into. So my tip of the week is actually has to do with something Jay Ruane recently put out, and it has to do with um, the Alexa stuff. Him and his wife put together a really cool Alexa skill called Family Conversations, and I checked it out last night with my kids, and they've got these these questions targeted towards, like, really – Increasing engagement with your kids, having these discussions with your kids. A lot of it has to do with safety. You know, like number 25 under one of these categories is, you know, when should you call 911? I mean, there's probably hundreds. I'm looking at their website, attorneyjillruane.com forward slash Alexa hyphen skill hyphen questions. Um, but you can also just search for it within, within the Alexa app if you've got Alexa. It's really cool. I think it's great. So if you're looking to get into the voice search, I mean, this is a pretty darn good template, so go check it out. Jay, great job, and thanks for sharing it with me. Cause this, is, this is really awesome. I'm 99.9% sure it's long. Yeah, I had to have launched because I, I did it last night, So, but it's, it's really awesome. So he's been working a long time on it, so go check it out. All right, Mike, thank you so much for coming on. You really shared. I, I'd say you probably overshared because you, you gave us so much information. So, so thank you so much for, for sharing and coming on the show.
1: I told you we wouldn't be able to keep it to 30 minutes.
2: <laughs> yeah. That was awesome, Mike. Thanks, man. My pleasure. Thanks, Thanks, for, me. Thanks for listening to the Maximum, the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. To stay in contact with your host and to access more content, more content. go to MaximumLawyer.com. MaximumLawyer.com. Have a great week and catch you next time.